Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martin. Now, our guest this week joined us all the way back in episode seven, which seems kind of crazy. Abby Page, the playwright, performer, poet. She's done stand-up comedy, which is kind of cool. Just a crazy, talented person. And we are super excited to have her back to discuss a very awesome new project, which Mike and I, for sure, are very, very excited about. Abby, welcome back to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's so exciting to talk to you guys again. Now, this is cool. So before we get talking about this new show, which is going to be awesome, I do want to touch upon a couple of other things that you have been working on. Uh, first, you got a new role with Resonance, which I think is kind of cool. So for those, we've talked about Resonance before in the past, but it's been a bit. So can you just remind us what that is and explain kind of what your new role is? Yeah, Resonance is a really great online literary journal published by the University of Maine at Orno. We just published our sixth issue, which was my first on the editorial board, As and I'm the drama and book review editor. And yeah, we have a really active board, and just this was a really, um, I'm really proud of this first issue for me, that we have like uh, five or six really great book reviews, and the, the sort of mission of the journal is to highlight the work of Franco-American authors and uh, communities. So yeah, there's a real interesting collection of of reviews of books from Louisiana, from the Midwest, from Haitian American Haitian American novelists, and so it's a real it's a really exciting mix of uh, of material. Yeah, really excited to p- contribute to it. The looks is different now. Yeah, like for those who haven't been in a bit, I did it one and checked it out, and it, it, it looks different. Yeah, so the whole site was migrated to a different platform now. That's just a little bit, a little bit, much prettier and it a sure little is. bit friendlier to uh, friendlier to navigate. So um, I think the the previous platform was really made more for uh, like s- scholarly publications, and and we're a little more friendly than that. So um, so now it looks like we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. When I, as soon as I. Because honestly, I didn't know before. I just checked back in. I'm like, oh, this is definitely a cool new look. So very. I can't imagine that's a super easy process, by the way, to change everything over. No, it was pre- it was pretty ambitious, and uh, I can't say I had much to do with it. It was mostly Stephen Riel, who's the editor in chief, and a couple of other people on the board. Erica Vermette, who's our new arts editor, who does visual art, and yeah, it just looks beautiful. But it was definitely a a big. Uh, a, a big bite to, to, to yeah, bite no, off. I'm sure. Yeah. Very cool. Now, also, I'd like to talk about the call and response conversation you had. So, can you talk a little bit about that? The, the kind of the Franco-American conversation. How did that come about? Where did that idea come from? How did you recruit others to be part of that with you? Yeah. So, just at the beginning of uh, of the pandemic, I got a couple of other Franco-American women who I knew uh, who and who I couldn't. I, you know, um, we have our annual rassemblement at the University of Maine, and it didn't happen in person, of course, in 2020. So shortly after that, we kind of were looking for other ways to stay in touch. And, and I was just interested in kind of collecting some stories from them about um, female ancestors and sort of thinking about how we think about um, how I'm always interested in kind of how we think about our ancestors. But sure. 
um, kind of balancing the tension of like that I think Franco-American women in particular are like remembered as being kind of dominant in their families more than more than maybe women in other cultures. Um, but also balancing that with the with the reality of like that they really didn't have access to like many options besides, sure. <laughs> you know, besides motherhood and maybe uh, maybe serving the church or things like that. So sort of balancing the kind of the legacy of our female ancestors. So yeah, we just started a, a conversation online. The, uh, was It's myself, um, Joan Vermette, who's a writer from Maine, um, Susan Poulin, who's a Maine humorist, and uh, Laurie Graves, who's a YA novelist. And um, and yeah, it was just a really, it was especially during 2020, it was a really sure. inspiring thing to do together. In, it definitely was, I mean, certainly thought-provoking for me because I know a lot of – we've talked about this before because that's my experience in my family. I always think about the women in my family being the strong personalities for sure. But as you pointed out, there's a whole lot – like the reproductive choices weren't always theirs. Like so many things in their life were, were – and you think of these you know, in your head, these super strong, super independent women who's just – so many aspects of the life that just we take for granted now seemingly were not were not even their choices. Then. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. And it's sort of easy to forget that because because of the force of some of those personalities that it's right. like, but actually there was a pretty small little domain that she was the that, she, you know, the matriarch of the family. It was really just the, you know, that small little orb that she had that she had reign over and didn't have a lot of reign over her own. Yeah. Like you said, her own choices. So an interesting paradox to think about no it is it was a very very cool article so um definitely glad make sure we can link that to, to to that article as well and make sure everybody can check out that i mean everything the forum sorry we should i didn't think we mentioned it, it was in the forum uh yeah. but, but everything the forum does is, is super neat so it is very very cool too and that was a uh, actually it was kind of it was a definitely a longer piece than, than a lot of the things that they have so yeah, I sent it in to, to Lisa Michaud, who edits the forum, and I, I just assumed she would split it up over maybe three or four three or four issues. And she was like, no, this is great. It's all yeah. going in. You know, it's like, whoa. But that's the amazing thing. It's such a grassroots publication that, yes, just amazing things happen there. Yeah, it was a very fun, just, you know, dialogue between you guys to watch. Anyway, let's get to the show. This is a very cool, exciting new show that we want to make sure to talk about. Last time you were here, we talked about a different one-woman show, you know, Piecework, When We Were French. Now you got an entirely new one-woman show, The Fille de Croix. What made you want to do an entire new one-person show by yourself? Well, I, you know, the first show somebody sort of assigned to me, and that was how I ended up doing it, and I probably wouldn't have ended up doing it any other way. And this one I just sort of like slid into, like, down a muddy slope into doing another <laughs> one-person show. So the other one was based on interviews because I was never interested in writing a show about myself and um, created it here, here in Burlington where I live now. And I just wanted um, to be able to talk to New Englanders about their own history. And then, but I was living in Canada, and so when I thought about trying to perform it in for a Canadian audience, I sort of felt like maybe it needed a different introduction or just some kind of context around it. So people would know more about the history of the migration of French Canadians into New England. So I started kind of writing a frame around the first show with the idea that I could just do this little intro and then do the show. And the more that I wrote, the more that it grew into like its own thing and it kind of got away from me. So now it's its own, <laughs> it's That's its own awesome. show. Yeah. So it snuck up on me. <laughs> That's a good surprise. I like that. So, all right. So, wh- how would you describe the show? 
full, so, full disclosure, Mike and I have already seen one performance of it, which was awesome. Yeah, so maybe I should have you describe it. Um, so <laughs> it's um, I'm not very good at the elevator speech version of describing the show, but it's more it's more personal than the previous show. So the yeah. other show I was developed by doing interviews with other people, and this one is really more about my personal experience, my own family heritage, and the fact that I grew up in Vermont in a French-Canadian family uh, and ended up marrying a Canadian who's actually an English-Canadian. But um, I immigrated to Quebec in 2008 and um, and arrived in Quebec thinking that I was French-Canadian and then, of course, found out like, oh, actually, <laughs> that's, yeah, right. not, that's, a very that's loaded not what thing, I yeah. am, you know? So, um, so it really forced me to look at my heritage in a different way to really account for the fact that it's been 100 years <laughs> since sure. my family lived there and sure. stuff stuff has happened in the interim. These people are doing something culturally that is actually different from what I'm doing culturally. And um, so the show is sort of about about that, about kind of how we relate to our ancestors, how we kind of tell stories about our ancestors that help us feel more comfortable about who we are, but maybe are not always truthful about who they were. And that we kind of ask them to carry this burden of like, make my life make sense. <laughs> sure. So, um, so there are a couple of, I'm, a, there's a character who is sort of a version of me. Um, and then the other characters are Jack Kerouac, who I think is sort of a significant French Canadian, maybe the most sort of known French uh, Franco-American. 100th birthday. Idol, yep. So good timing to celebrate with Uncle Jack. And, <laughs> um, and then La Corriveau, who's a, who's a folklore character, a Quebecois folklore character, who's a woman who was executed by the British in the 1760s um, for murdering her husband. And there's a lot of folklore around her ghost and her sort of haunting the area of Quebec that she's from. Um, and I actually am like very distantly related to her. So I'm not related to Jack Kerouac that I know of, but. At least you're not going to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of, I'm sort of in conversation with those two dead, dead uh, ancestors. And then also with my own ancestors and, um, and, and also just thinking about what it means to be a, you know, my, my family got here really got to North America really early, like in the early 1600s oh, wow. and the French sides and the English side. And, uh, and so that's like a really specific relationship to think about in terms of, um, you know, my relationship with like indigenous peoples or just how long I've how long I've been here and kind of taking responsibility for what that might mean. Besides just like, oh, I, you know, I'm a native Vermonter or I'm sure. a Fiduhua. I have Fiduhua in my family tree. So that may, somehow makes me more more French Canadian than somebody else or, you know, the same way people who are descendants of the Mayflower sort of think they're a little more American than everybody else. <laughs> sort yeah. of like how we use our ancestors like that to sort of stick it to other people. <laughs> sure. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, somebody I also have the the feeder want ancestry. You're right. It's almost like you get a, a bona fides badge yeah. that you get if you can trace your ancestry back. Yeah. Maybe just talk about the it's a good transition to talk about the name. Why did you choose to call it what you did? Yeah, so for people who don't know, Les Fidurois are a group of women who were recruited by the King of France to to come to New France and help populate the French colony with European babies. And it's sort of a point of pride among people with French Canadian ancestry to be able to trace themselves to one of those women. And certainly thinking about what their lives would have been like is is very <laughs> humbling. But I'm really interested in what what we're kind of up to when we 
try to claim people that way. Sure. What we're trying to get out of those people, how we're trying, how we're trying to use them. Like I, like I said, with the Mayflower. And so I wanted to sort of, so les filles du croix means, the, les filles du roi are the daughters of the king. Les filles du croix are, means the daughters of what? Right. Um, so just thinking about like, what exactly are we talking about when we're, <laughs> when we're trying to wave that flag or show off that badge? Which is interesting because, I mean, I think a lot of us, we do it. Right. All, we do it all the time, for sure. Well, and that's kind of, it's kind of, um, you know, genealogy is a little bit like a treasure hunt. And of course. And so when you've, you sort of end up feeling when you find somebody who's like, oh my God, this person's on a list, you know? Right. That may, somehow makes them significant. It makes, you know, you feel like you get, you get some of that significance <laughs> by association, it, you know? Yeah. And it is kind of funny because I know when I first went down that, you know, genealogy rabbit hole, one of the, and I attended like a, a group of people who were do, all doing their genealogy on the French side. And that was literally one of the very first questions was, have you found a few do I yet? Like that, yeah. that was like an important box you had to check in order to, to make sure you qualified as being, you know, French enough, I guess, right. at that point. Well, yeah, and the way that we use um, the genetic tests are used now, and I think people use them in a way that maybe they don't totally understand what the results mean and think, like, it's happened in my family that people in my family have done it. And I don't know really why they've done it, because we have very good genealogical records in my family. So we kind of know who we came from, but they've done it. And like, my mom has more French in her profile than her brother. So she therefore thinks she's more French than her brother is, you know, and it's like, that's not really what those results mean. But I think a lot of people use them that way as sure. like, a, where do we go? You know, where do I fit on the French hierarchy when it's like, do we really want to be engaged in that? Is that right. really what we're going for? Yeah, no. Because I, I find that a little scary. I think that goes to a pretty <laughs> dark place pretty fast. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You could definitely take that down the wrong path. No, for sure. And no, I do think it's, I mean, for me, it's kind of fun. I've done a bunch of those just because I every once in a while I find a new cousin who I right. connect with, which, yeah. I think, which I think is kind of cool. One thing I will note that this show is in French and English, which is different. And what made you want to go in that? Were you, first of all, you were at all nervous about making that decision that you might, you might have a part of your audience that might not be super excited to have to listen to French? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that was kind of, that was probably what did it a little bit. So I was living, I, I was living in Canada until about six months ago, nine months ago, maybe now. Um, I've been in Canada for the last 13 years, the last six of those in New Brunswick. And New Brunswick is officially a bilingual province. Sure. Um, but there actually isn't a lot that happens in New Brunswick that is bilingual that, it's usually the French people are doing their stuff and the English people are doing their stuff. Um, while I was living in New Brunswick, there was a bilingual production, theater production, and I went to see it and I was so excited and it ended up, there was no language in the bilingual production. It was the the kind of exciting thing that was happening apparently was that French and English artists were working together, but the presentation was actually, there was no language in the presentation oh, wow. at all. It was just movement and silence. And I was, I was really disappointed. Right. I was like, oh, okay, this is, <laughs> sure. this is where we're at in terms of bilingualism. So, and especially there, I felt like English people had a real resistance to being, to hearing French. Um, so I really felt like I would love to create something where people who speak French and people who speak English could come and be in the same room and try to have a good time. And maybe everybody doesn't understand everything that's said, but just having that exposure and have and sitting a little bit in that discomfort that you have when a language is being spoken that you mm-hmm. don't understand and just being aware of like oh this feels a little uncomfortable this feels a little funny and is it po- was it would it be possible to create an environment like that 
So originally I was thinking of, of presenting it in New Brunswick. So it's different to bring it to Vermont sure. and, um, and think about how to make that work here because the language dynamics are totally different, obviously. No, of course. And, and I definitely will stress there are plenty of people in attendance who didn't, when, when I saw it, who did not speak French. I certainly could not speak anywhere near as well as I can now at that time. And you don't have to be a fluent French speaker to understand what is going on in this production at all. I thought it was awesome the way it was done. It was very, very cool. Oh, thank you. Well, and with the theater that I'm working with in uh, Vermont, which is Lost Nation Theater in Montpelier, Vermont, they're actually going to provide subtitling for a lot of the French. So it's going to really be um, English with French and the French is going to have English subtitles. So that's going to make it much more accessible to people. I do still kind of love the idea of just spewing some French at people and having them be like, what? No, I think that's cool, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But um, so I think there's going to be a little bit, there's going to be moments where there aren't going to be subtitles. But, um, but the idea is that like, it's okay if you don't understand, like, we all need to be more comfortable in environments where we don't understand. That's like, I think the world would be such a better place if we could all be like, whoa, I don't know what's happening right now. But I'm, you know, nothing dangerous seems to be happening. So I'm just going to sit with this and see what happens. Yeah, no, no, I actually thought that was kind of, I know, just from my perspective, having seen it, I thought that was kind of cool that there were plenty of places where I did not necessarily understand, you know, word for word what was happening, but it was okay because I could, I got the big picture of what was right. trying to be. And I thought just coming from that perspective, I thought it was a cool effect just as an audience member for, for that kind of thing. So I thought it was cool. Nice. Now, yeah. Now, how about, can you talk about, you mentioned the theater. Can you talk about this theater a little bit? Have you worked with them before? What is this place like? Yeah. So Lost Nation Theater is in Montpelier. It's actually in, uh, this. it's in the same building as the city hall um, oh, cool. of Montpelier. And Montpelier is the smallest state capital in the United States. It's a great little town, very vibrant little town. Um, and yeah, I've worked a bunch with them and they, while I was living in Canada, they were really like a theater that I kept coming back to and doing work even while I was living away. The first production I ever did with them, which I've, and a production that I've actually done twice is a play called Judavine, which is by a Vermont playwright, David Budbill, which is a play that's very much a Vermont play of, with Vermont characters and, and was really a, a really exciting experience. And um, Kim Bent, who directed me in that I think the first time we did it was 2007, maybe. So he's also directing Les Vifis du Quoi. And he's just somebody who I really trust. He doesn't speak French, but he's like really open and um, just a really great sensitive director and somebody who's really fun to work with. So, so yeah, I'm really excited to be there. It's a really exciting place for the, for my little show. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's very awesome. Now, in something we talked to actually a lot about when we did the, our piecework conversation, which I thought was incredibly fascinating. You kind of alluded to it before, which was the process that kind of you used to put the show together and with all the interviews and stuff you did. Now, this was obviously a very, very different process. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, how did you find these characters that you were going to highlight? Like, what did this look like putting this show together? Yeah. So like I said, the, the show sort of grew out of, it started with me kind of thinking about, well, how could I talk about these Franco-American experience or history to people in Canada who aren't really aware of it? So I started with that and then started writing about some of my, some of my own experiences. And then it sort of grew out of, a lot of it was anger actually, or just maybe discomfort, frustration with different things about how bilingualism works in Canada 
how segregated linguistically Canada can be, For sure. um, which is very different from the United States. And just feeling like a real outsider, <laughs> um, which is a, a sort of maybe sort of a surprising thing for Americans to think that you could be in Canada and can't, you know, Canadians are so polite and that they, everybody has such a great impression of Canada and I love Canada, but sure. there are things that are, that were really frustrating culturally about living there. So partly it was responding to that. And then, yeah, I just like Jack Kerouac, I kind of went looking for like, who's, who are some Franco-Americans who I could kind of draw on as to help people understand what I'm talking about. And of course, Jack Kerouac is somebody who everybody's going to know about. And actually, right. the first time I did like a reading of the show to a Francophone audience in New Brunswick, there's a line where I say, um, Je suis pas Québécoise, ni Acadienne, ni Française, moi je suis Franco-Américaine, comme Jack Kerouac. And somebody went, oh. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> like, That's cool. Yeah, and the audience, like, they're like, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I get yeah. that now. That's awesome. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so yeah, that's kind of how he ended up there was just that people would be like, oh, him. But then sure. I have really complicated feel and frustrated feelings about him, too. So a lot of the show grew out of like a feeling of like, why is this? Why does this work this way? Why does everybody know who Jack Kerouac is? And and also the fact that a lot of uh, French Canadians, I think particularly people in Quebec, kind of want to feel like Jack Kerouac is Quebecois because he's a well-known Francophone North American. Sure. And I feel really strongly that he's American. He's like of the United States. And so I, I feel a combination of like really protective of him and also kind of like annoyed and frustrated with him. So it just ended up being like something really fertile to write about. So yeah, that's what a lot of the material just ended up being stuff that was like, I was really writing just to figure out how I felt. But it was very, it was much more of a, the writing process was much more of a solo process than the first show, which was all based on interviews and connecting with other people. Sure. Now, did were you already familiar with the story of that other character that that La woman? Yeah, we. Oui. Yeah, so I knew I knew of that story because my great grandmother was a Corivo, and oh, wow. so so yeah, I was just aware of that story. And then there's a book, I think it's called La Corivo, La Légende de l'Histoire, or something, written by somebody. I believe it's uh, Ferland. Is her for Ferland is her name? I can't remember her first name right now. But the authors are Ferland and Corvo. Um and it's in French. But it's sort of they just basically took the 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 story, the folk tale, and then sto- studied the real history behind the woman sure. and tried to figure out who she really was and what really happened. So so I went and read that book, and yeah, because I wanted there to be some female ancestor too, but I didn't know who to who to go to other than my own female ancestors. And then I just love. Um, yeah, I mean, she's like she's a ghost, right? So right. she can kind of say whatever she wants, and she there are no rules about how she's going to operate theatrically because she's she's a spirit. So like, what is going to happen when she shows up on stage? <laughs> so it's it's really exciting as a especially as a performer to think about like, oh, maybe she just can you know maybe she can move like this. Who knows? Like, how do dead people move? <laughs> well, it's not something people think about very much, you know. So. It's very awesome when she shows up on stage. I don't want to spoil how that appearance looks, but no, it's very, very cool. I did want to bring up one thing, though, because it both it, it's, it's the same thing in, in piecework. And I talked about that where there was like a, a lot of pretty serious, heavy topics that come out there to the point where I remember the first time I watched it, I had to hit pause a couple of times because there's just things that hit pretty hard because it was like I, I felt like I knew those people that you were talking about. Like they reminded me of you know, my grandparents and a cousin and stuff like that. But in this this show as well, you touch on a lot of very heavy, serious, deep topics. But 
you always do approach it with a bunch of humor added in. And you just talk about the process of you're, you're, you're tackling some pretty serious stuff here, but you are doing it with using humor throughout the vast, vast majority of the work, which is interesting. Yeah. So my background in performance is really in comedy. And I think that is because I'm interested in, I, I like that um, in a like in stand up, for example, I mean, I didn't do, I did do stand up. I didn't do a lot of stand up. I didn't like, I would, I wouldn't, I wasn't like a touring stand up or something, but I really love the way that that kind of performance is set up in that you and I are in the same room that the audience and the performer are in the same room. I can see you, you can see me. And like, I have to be able to hold your attention well enough. I, that, you know, I'm the, I'm talking right now. It's sure. not your turn to talk, right. but like, but we are in the same room and it's not, so it's not like a theatrical performance, like on Broadway where, you know, the audience gets to sit in the dark and they're kind of anonymous and they don't need to, they're not implicated by anything that's been saying, being said, they're just there to receive. Right. Um, I'm really interested in the idea that like, what if, like, what if we acknowledge that we're all in the same room right now? So I can bring up these, if I'm going to bring up this really heavy, scary stuff, I need to kind of take responsibility for like, okay, you can trust me that I'm going to bring this stuff up, but I'm inviting you to come with me. Like I'm inviting you to come with me and I'm not going to make it, I'm going to try to make it comfortable for us, you know? And I think that is really how, how we can learn better is like I was saying, like we all need to be kind of braver about being uncomfortable, but that's one way to do it is to say like, let's try to have a good time while we're talking about these heavy things. So that's, yeah, I'm just interested in everybody having, I mean, and especially with the pandemic, I mean, I really, really missed, I mean, I don't want to oversell how much I love theater because I think there's a lot of bad theater and I can totally understand people going to theater and being like, oh no, that wasn't fun. <laughs> but I really think like transformational things can happen when sure. human beings are physically in the same room. And I don't think that can happen on Zoom, actually. <laughs> No. no, no, I love that answer. That's awesome. That is very, very cool. Okay, so how can everybody catch this performance if they want to check it out? You don't even have to just be there in attendance, which Mike and I are going to try to be, but yeah. you don't actually <laughs> have to actually be there in order to catch this. So tell tell everybody where you can watch it. Yeah, so if you are within shooting distance of Montpelier, Vermont, the show runs uh, June 16th to the 26th. There are performances on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and there's a Sunday matinee for both of those weekends. And you can go and find out at Lost Nation Theater's website or at my website, which is abbypage.com. But if you are on the backside of the moon and can't get there. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's going to be a live stream, which I believe is going to be June 17th. And then if you can't make the live stream, there's going to be an on-demand recording of the live stream from the 18th to the 26th that you can just watch at your leisure when you're, you know, I don't know, first thing in the morning while you're pouring <laughs> your coffee if you want. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's lots of opportunities to see it, and and uh, which is really exciting too for like, it's sort of the best of both worlds that has grown out of the, this terrible pandemic experience is that like, we can kind of have it both ways now. It is kind of crazy. I mean, just, if you think how much has changed just in two years is, is beyond nutty to me, but now, yeah. but no excuses then plenty of opportunities <laughs> if you're in the area, go check it out. If not, make sure you watch one either live or on demand later on. Abby, this has been way, way fun. I appreciate you joining. Oh, thanks for the invitation. And thanks you guys for what you do. Really. It's so great. The conversations that you're leading. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think.
think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.